Välkomna till Fritankes podd. Christer Sturmark heter jag, förlagschef på Fritanke. Ja, imorgon är Circus Scandia-scenen i princip fullsatt. Det finns lite, lite biljetter kvar. Richard Dawkins, Lawrence Krauss, Jana Levin uppträder och talar om vetenskap och kosmologi. Vi har... Lite fler biljetter kvar till Daniel Dennett och Nick Boström den 13 november. Så passa på att gå in och boka. Idag ska vi spela in podcastavsnitt både med Richard Dawkins och Lawrence Krauss. De kommer att bli tillgängliga nästa vecka respektive veckan efter. Och idag har vi alltså den 18 oktober. Vi kommer lite längre fram att göra avsnitt med Olle Häggström, professor i matematikstatistik vid Chalmers, som ju intresserar sig för artificiell intelligens och de stora existentiella riskerna som finns, eller möjligen finns, för vår planet. Han har skrivit en bok om detta, Here Be Dragons. Vi kommer att göra en podd också med juridikprofessorn Mårten Schultz och filmkännaren Jörgen Ovensen ska berätta om Stanley Kubrick och hans filmer. Många poddar på gång alltså och självklart gör vi en podd med Dan Dennett och Nick Bodström, Boström när de kommer hit. Men nu ska ni få träffa dagens gäst, kosmologiprofessor, delaktig i projekt LIGO som fick årets Nobelpris i fysik- Alltså upptäckten av gravitationsvågorna belönades med årets Nobelpris i fysik. Och en av dem som har varit med i det här forskarteamet är Jana Levin som vi nu ska intervjua i Fritankes podd. Varsågoda. Okej. Okay. Så so just, um, how long will we go for? Just... Half a minute. Half an hour. Half an hour. Half a minute. Super fast. <laughs> Lightning fast. speed. <laughs> Okej, <Okay>, I'm in. <laughs> so... Jana Levin, welcome to Fritanke podcast. I'm so glad to be here. Um, tell me, you just wrote this book, uh, Black Hole Blues is the English title, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. In Swedish, it's Rymd Blues. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's about the, the discovery of the gravitational waves. Yes. Is that the biggest discovery in physics in the last hundred years? It, it, I really think it is. And I think it might be the biggest discovery for the next hundred years as well. Really? It's really quite something, not just because of the magnitude of the difficulty of the achievement technologically, but also um, it's something utterly different than light. If you look at the way we know the universe, we know it from taking pictures. Mm-hmm. I mean, we take pictures outside of what the human eye can grasp, but but it's light. It's these snapshots. It's like we've compiled a kind of silent movie mm-hmm. of the evolution of the universe going back, you know, 14 billion years and 92 billion light years across. And and um, and this is something utterly different. I, I liken it to recording the soundtrack for the first time. So yeah. we're going to go from silence to talkies. <laughs> yeah, because you see it as music, the music of the yes. universe. And you know, sense. I love this story. So Ray Wise, who is one of the recipients of uh, the 2017 Nobel Prize in Physics for this discovery, um, told me flat out, I love this quote from him. It's so simple, but so sweet. He said, I, I started life with one ambition. I wanted to make music easier to hear. And then he, you know, he's like a kid in New York City building high fives of the first kind, high fidelity. And they just started having FM radio and they just started having these these uh, abilities. And 
he goes from that as a young teenager, like kind of an entrepreneur, to recording the cosmic sounds from space. It couldn't be it couldn't be a sweeter connection, really. It's a be- that's a beautiful story, yeah. and I must tell you a, a fun story as well about your Swedish book because <clears throat> we we actually released it or t- told about it the same day as the Nobel Prize was presented uh, oh, two weeks ago. Oh, yeah. So I had already <laughs> prepared the press release saying uh-huh. that this is the book about uh, this year's Nobel uh, Prize in Physics. And I was sitting with my finger on the send button while right. I was watching the press conference from the Royal Academy of Science. Right, and when they, when they said gravitational waves, I pushed the send button. <laughs> That's perfect. So I was, I, I also, other people had preloaded with anticipation. So the BBC booked an interview with me for that morning in anticipation that the prize would go that way. And um, because Europe is obviously on a later time zone than I am, yeah. I woke up in New York City eight minutes, I think, after the announcement. And the first thing I saw was the BBC saying, phew, we're on. <laughs> and then so I go, ah, so they cool. want it. That's yeah. so cool. But tell me, how did, you, how did you get into this project? The LIGO project. Yeah, the well, LIGO project. Honestly, I set out to write a completely different book. And this happens to me a lot. <laughs> well, okay. three times this has happened to me. So I wanted to write a straightforward book about black holes, maybe more expository. And mm. I feel like I have a lot of you know new ways into thinking about black holes just because I do this daily. This is my scientific research. And um, and and with a connection to, to LIGO in the sense that the anticipation of the discovery was motivating a lot of really aggressive research in black hole physics. And so we were doing things that we might not have been trying to do if there wasn't this promise of some kind of observation in the future. And, um, and you know, we've been working on this since before the first generation of experiments were built. Mm. Um, so LIGO was just peripheral to my motivation. And then I, so I'm very theoretical. My work, I take a pen and paper, and that's mm. how I work. And mm. and we uh, conjecture, and then we prove it on paper, or we disprove it on paper more times than not. Um, so but, it's more mathematics than physics, in a sense, for you. It's a very mathematical form of physics, okay, yeah, yeah, for mm. sure. And it's way on the mathy side in that sense. And here, they were building something, and as um, a person on the outside of the experiment, I just kind of became enamored of what they were doing. And uh, as I dug into it deeper, I just re- had this whole other story I discovered. And I, my editor in New York, Dan Frank at Knopf, um, was like, stop trying to hide, you know, shy away from the story. This is where, there's, this is where the story is. And it really was about not the achievement, because it hadn't happened yet. <laughs> it was about the risk and the ambition and the insane relentlessness of you know these few people who made this happen over 50 years mm-hmm. and the incredible potential for failure which loomed i mean even in august before the first major discovery was made ray weiss said you know if we don't discover black holes this thing is a failure mm-hmm. i mean that's a really strong statement from somebody who spent 50 years of their life mm-hmm doing this. I mean, it must have been a fantastic feeling for him or for the team to, yeah. to find them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I had to say one of the heights of my 
scientific experience in, in the sense of community was being um, informed of the discovery ahead of time so that I had those months with the team, you know, to just, the only people I could talk to in the world mm. <laughs> about okay. it were the were the experimentalists on the team. And I was sworn to silence, as was everybody else, because um, for several months. Because you wanted to check months. for errors and so on. Oh, yeah, they, they, yeah, they have a real strong embargo mm. on any leaks until the press conference is made. So you know the discoveries happen and 6 months later there's there's an announcement but you could you could work on your book well the book was essentially yeah, that's yeah. True. so yeah, it was true. largely written and it yeah. was really interesting yeah. so ray was worried that i i would want to rewrite the whole thing mm. <laughs> and yeah. i i kept saying you know the book is about yeah, not knowing if you're going to succeed mm. that is what the book is really about mm. it's really i mean it is about obviously gravitational wave science but it's more than anything, I think, about climbing Mount Everest. You yeah, know, yeah, it's yeah. about the human drive to explore even when the prospect of failure could be ruinous. Mm. And um, and I wouldn't have been able to do that had I known ahead of time. But, but yes. The, but you also had this um, extra chapter explaining yes, discovery. So, yes, so we have, yes, yes. Um, LIGO now. Well, yeah. um, first of all, what does it stand for? L yeah, so yeah. so we we Americans say LIGO. LIGO, <laughs> but, uh, LIGO, okay, LIGO. <laughs> and everyone's um, permitted their own, you know, interpretation. Yeah. So LIGO is the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Wait, wait, wait. Laser Interferometer? Gravitational, Gravitational wave, wave Observatory. Observatory. And okay. all the, a lot of those words got them into trouble. Okay, okay. <laughs> the word observatory alone provoked such hostility in the scientific community. Why? Because they said it's not an observatory until you observe something. Like it's, like, and it's also more of a physics experiment. It's not, you would be very surprised at the sociology behind the strife, but there was tremendous opposition to LIGO. Mm. And some of it was understandable. You know, I would often be um, worried about some of the criticisms that maybe they'd be right, that it wouldn't succeed and it'd be a billion dollars. And it, it was technologically successful, but maybe nature wasn't going to provide these mm. cataclysmic events that were so loud that they would ring these incredibly delicate instruments. And people were worried, including including people on the ground in the experiment. Is this the sort of the biggest uh, uh, observatory in the world? Or the biggest um, measuring equipment? That's a very good question. It's um, up there, but there are, okay. <laughs> like, there's now something which will definitely be bigger. It's okay. Event Horizon Telescope. And the idea of Event Horizon Telescope is to make a telescope as big as the entire Earth. And so what okay. you do is you use as many radio dishes, essentially, that you can find or, you know, mm. different wave bands in that zone um, around the Earth, even ones that used to be defunct that they've brought back to life for the purpose of looking at the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. So there's a black hole 26,000 light years away that's a few million times the mass of the sun. And... Um, And that's an incredibly massive black hole, but but black holes are actually physically small. It's probably only three sun widths across, mm -hmm. yet millions of times its mass. Mm -hmm. So the what they're trying to do is they're literally trying to take a picture of the shadow cast by the black hole in the center wow. of the galaxy. It'll be the first technical picture ever taken of a black hole. Because while we see things, we only see th them indirectly, mm. right? We only see the devastation and the havoc wreaked 
on something nearby. Mm. But this would be literally the shadow cast by the event horizon. And when will that happen? If Very it... soon. Really? Yeah, they're taking data. They've got data. Um, they're analyzing it. I'm trying to read facial expressions. <laughs> to cool. See. It looks very exciting. And they'll probably, like Interstellar, the movie, yeah. see this bright disc around it. So, it, you know, they'll see this um, uh, a similar kind of an image to yeah. what they had in that movie, which will be interesting. Kip Thorne was uh, advisor on that film. Yes, right? Kip is absolutely just a phenomenal human being. He's like, <laughs> he's like, I'm retiring sort of from Caltech or I'm emeritus at Caltech so I can start my new career as a, you know, filmmaker. <laughs> <laughs> Did you like the film yourself? Interesting. I loved parts of the film, mm. um, and and I liked the the sciencey parts. I thought were very mm. elegant. Mm. Um, the end lost me a little bit. It yeah. was interpretive, but you know that's cool. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah, I have yeah. to answer a lot of questions that people ask about what yeah. goes on inside a black hole. <laughs> but um, but I do think you know Kip is just a spectacularly creative person. So mm. he doesn't feel the boundaries in some sense that other people feel. He just he just explores, you know. How closely do you work with these guys in your normal day? Well, Kip more than Ray. So Ray and I became very close during the writing of the book mm. because I, you know, as I said, I, I, I suddenly had this affection for mm. this insane ambition to make something out of, you know, metal and glass and um, to actually build something physical. Mm. That's so outside of my realm. And it such an incredibly difficult um, uh, instrument. Yeah. Um, and so Ray and I became close during that. We would I went to the sites with him and we talked for hours and hours and hours. I have a lot of tape of Ray. Mm. And it was his cadence and his voice that made me completely redirect the book. Like I wanted to write it like a novel so that where Ray's a character mm. and he has lines. And, um, and that's really the whole idea that, that you could be deep into it and it could read as well as, as fiction as nonfiction was the hope, was the aspiration. Now Kip, I was much closer to scientifically. And, um, and I remember seeing Kip very young and getting really excited about what he was talking about um, in astrophysics. And he's a real icon for me um, as a real creative individual. And also, I love the style. He's a very formal mathematical person, and the calculations are always very beautiful, mm -hmm. and they're very hard, but they're, so they're he was, really in the, uh, to the so jugular. Did he affect your, your decisions to what you wanted to do in your life? Yeah, mm -hmm. I'm sure in ways that I probably wasn't totally even yeah. aware of, mm -hmm. um, and that would stew or marinate for a long period of time. I didn't start working in gravitational waves until much later, uh -huh. um, but I worked on black holes in space-time and all of that kind of stuff. And that was definitely, Kip laid a lot of the groundwork. Mm. Um, he was very fortunate, as I uh, like to think, in terms of having both um, an untrampled terrain to be able to be the first mm. to think about some of these things, mm. and also to have the talent to do that. It's a lot easier to follow. <laughs> <laughs> but tell me about your own, I mean, where did you grow up, first of all? Where, where, where? So I grew up in Chicago. Okay. And mostly in Chicago, although, you know, I don't and know, I'm still growing family, up in New York. What did your parents do? Yeah. Oh, so um, my dad is a doctor, and he 
did some, you know, people ask if I was from a sciencey family. I would always say I'm not, but my dad did do fundamental research and, you know, he worked, he, he took sabbaticals where he would do mm. research and um, medical research. So there was that leaning, I guess, in mm. retrospect. Um, but, and then my mother, I, I always say she really taught me how to read. I don't mean literally like phonetically sound mm. out, but she was so, had such a wonderful sort of, curatorial sense for books and she introduced me to just great books I mean the most wonderful books and that's when I remember falling in love with with fiction so it had the sort of dual influences that's interesting because I'm thinking of another person who I know a little bit uh, Rebecca Goldstein professor of philosophy and she also writes uh, sort of non-fiction books and yeah. fiction yeah. because I know that you have written fiction as well uh-huh. yeah. um, so in that sense you're a bit similar but yeah. when, did, when did you discover that your interest in mathematics very late and I this is a really interesting I, mean, I remember so clearly thinking that physics was the least creative field a person could possibly, why would anyone do such a thing? I thought physicists built bombs and memorized equations. I couldn't think of anything more tedious or terrible. And um, and I didn't finish high school for not interesting reasons. I just never finished high school. And I, I went straight to college, and uh, which means I missed advanced classes in you know high school like I had never taken physics or calculus or I hadn't really been exposed to those things until college and um there I am in college you know I I kind of knew math was okay for me like I I I didn't mind it and um and I definitely took to it very easily and I remember just in the process of going through some of my classes having to take chemistry having to take the required um, demands of a college education in the states. Somebody said to me, "Have you ever considered physics?" And I was, I thought, "What are you talking about? What could what could you possibly be talking about?" And I was a philosophy major, and I'm mm-hmm. s- sitting there in a philosophy class where I'm very frustrated that we're still trying to figure out what Kant meant. Drove me crazy, right? And uh, we had a visiting lecturer who was a philosopher of science who started talking about um, Einstein and free will and quantum mechanics. And I was completely struck by two things. One was the cogency of the arguments Mm -hmm. that nobody was saying, what did Einstein mean? Nobody says that. Mm -hmm. Once you learn relativity, It's yours. Yeah, yeah. It's a gift. Yeah. And we can all use it. Nobody's going back like, I don't understand what he meant by the speed of light. You know, we no. all understand what he means yeah. when we take the time to learn it. So you're more into analytical philosophy than this continental I, French. I, well, honestly, I mean, I was deep <laughs> in. Like I was like neck deep in Heidegger and loving it. Okay, okay, you were. But I couldn't Heidegger. stand. Oh, I couldn't stand. It was more the romance of the weirdness of the language, yeah. the thingly character of the thing. And like, it was more almost aesthetic. I don't think Heidegger understood what he meant. No. Himself. And in fact, I don't think it had anything to do with solving problems no. or providing answers. No. It was about things that I do still appreciate. Rhythm of language, yeah. um, hitting you in the solar plexus with a strange feeling or experience or an intuition. Mm. Um, and But for answering big questions, I just kind of suddenly realized 
you have to study physics. Mm. It was like, it was really a kind of a sudden revelation. And I was halfway through college. So I had this frantic trying to catch up period mm. where I just took tons of classes mm. in physics and astronomy. And it was like a year and a half later, I was at MIT trying to get a PhD. It was very, very fast. It was very strange. It's not a path I recommend. <laughs> no, no. But quantum physics, I mean, nobody seems to understand that, even the quantum physicists. They don't. And I <laughs> do think about this, too, that um, we can use things we don't fully understand and it's not okay to let that hang there it means there's something else it mm. really does i cannot believe that there isn't something else that we're just at the limit mm. of our understanding so you're not a friend of this uh, shut up and calculate attitude to uh, well like you know we have there like by day shut up and calculate okay, okay, by night over my... a glass of wine <laughs> Pontificate. Good, good point. Good point. Okay, so that's when you turned over to physics. Yeah. Uh, and and then what? What did you do? How well, did your career start? I think I've always been on the same cusp, which is I love the formality of mathematics. I love the elegance of mm. it. I think that every scientist has something that um, they they rely on as their strength. And for me, I love to find these kind of cracking the walnut solutions. You know, I, there might be a solution which I know is going to be 20 pages. So sometimes I'll work with a student. I'll be like, start, the, this is how you solve it, go. And I'll sit there over the days trying to find the crack the walnut version, which is a half a page. <laughs> and um, I still love that. I've always loved that. I've always loved it when I read original papers that were just four pages long and were just clean and transparent and formal mathematically but using the most elegant bones and it's like a work of art really seriously and then but on the astrophysics side i mean and, and that that's persisted my interest has always been in the origin of the universe the large-scale structure of space-time whether the universe is infinite or finite black holes black holes are not like other astrophysical objects, they're almost not objects at all. Mm. They're really something fundamental. So there, there is some kind of fascination for the fundamental questions in your oh, attitude. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. That, in a sense, yeah. correlates with yeah. philosophy. Yeah, I tend to peter out, and I probably shouldn't publicly confess this about my <laughs> flaws, but I tend to peter out when I have to start adding really complicated, like, oh, and then there's gas, and there's dust, uh -huh. and it's spinning, and uh -huh. blah, you know, and then I kind of, yeah, okay, I'm going to go back and start a new, <laughs> start on a new, nice, clean landscape. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Um, but then, <clears throat> so where where did you start to work on these issues professionally? Where did you go? Well, MIT really was MIT. was when it started for me, and I um, I uh, you know it was an un MIT was an unusual experience, but um, but I had some wonderful collab like the first person uh, I wrote a scientific paper with um, one was Katie Fries who was at Nordita here mm -hmm. in Sweden and uh, another co-author on that paper was David Spurgle who's a really um, accomplished um, uh, scientist at Princeton and uh, you know those are I mean wonderful people to start with and you um, you know it's really I think my best experiences in terms of scientific experiences have to do with the people that you work with and learn mm. from mm. directly. What, <clears throat> what's your take on the, I mean, there are obviously 
trend ideas also in yeah. your field, like yeah. string theory, for example, yeah. uh-huh. or Marx's mathematical universe uh, uh-huh. idea. Yeah. What do you think about these ideas? Um, well, I think uh, Marx's mathematical universe is more sort of an attitude. It's not something you take up and pursue as a model of the world necessarily in some operational way. String theory is really compelling, but um, I think I there's something about it that was hard to get into for me in that it there, it had a proliferation of so many models that you had to start to, it was almost like biology, like a proliferation of of things you had, nomenclatures, and it, it just, it, it seemed less clean than it was supposed to be. It was mm. supposed to be one sentence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you were supposed to start there and go from there to something wonderful. But I do, I do, think about string theory on the periphery. So I work with Brian Green, who's uh, been a close collaborator. And um, we've had some nice, um, I think, ideas about how string theory, let's say, the idea of the extra spatial dimensions could impact how we view the history of the Big Bang. Mm -hmm. And could uh, extra spatial dimensions be trapping the energy that looks to us like dark energy. Have we already observed string theory in extra dimensions by observing dark energy? And um, so I like doing it at that level, but almost always I end up going back to the space-time stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think that we ever, ever will have this unified theory where we can unify quantum and gravity and relativity? Yeah, it's really... So <clears throat> basically, not flawlessly, but basically all the matter forces can be unified. I mean, there's a little, some snags, but basically it's completely compelling that there is one Hmm. fundamental um, theory of matter that can be quantized, a quantum theory, and that will precipitate out at different energy scales to be the weak force, the strong force, and, Mm -hmm. and electromagnetism. Gravity stands apart. And so your question I interpret as, will gravity ever get in there and yeah. collude with the others to be one mathematical expression of not just matter, but matter and gravity, and it'll be a quantum theory? I honestly don't know anymore. Mm-hmm. It might be that gravity is not fundamental in some really profound and subtle sense. So for instance, in this room, we experience the temperature of the room, mm-hmm. but there's no particle that carries the quantity temperature. Mm. It's only emerges out of the collective behavior of all the particles acting together. It's an emer- emergent phenomenon. Exactly. It's an emergent phenomenon. Phenomena. There's nothing fundamental about temperature. If I look at one particle, it doesn't have a thing no. called temperature. No. It may be that if I look fundamentally at one particle in the universe or fundamental particles, none of them have the property that we think is gravity mm. or mass or whatever, that, that it's an emergent property that comes out of the quantum phenomenon, that quantum mechanics will turn out to be more fundamental, and that this idea of a space-time will emerge out of this behavior of quantum entanglement or or some subtle phenomenon like that. And so I think that's fascinating possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, mind, I mean, really quite mind-blowing. The, one of the most basic experiences of our reality might actually be, to some extent, an illusion, a coarse-grained illusion that is ultimately due to quantum mechanics. Hmm, that's interesting. But Einstein never accepted quantum physics at all, and, right? You know, it wasn't unreasonable. It was, I think, that we dismiss the criticisms, but they're still there. We've just, like you said, gotten to this kind of shut-up-and-calculate attitude, yeah, but yeah. we didn't 
fix the problems. We, no, we haven't fixed that. <laughs> I'm actually bothered by that as I, well. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. You know, it's the kind of thing that uh, you should lose sleep over. <laughs> exactly. And and do, do you think that there might be there might be some completely different interpretation that solves these things that is completely different from what we think of now? Or is it all in the details? I mean, I, I just, I honestly don't know. And I've been having these conversations with Max Tagmark, who you mm. brought up, with mm. Frank Wilczek, who's also spent time yeah. here in Stockholm, yeah. recently at Nordita. And Max um, is Swedish, you know. Yes, of yeah, course, yeah, yeah. of course, yeah. And, um, and uh, I don't feel that my intuition has been better no. swayed mm. by opposing viewpoints. It's just, um, yeah, it, it might be that there's something that is very basic. We add new interactions, or it might be something incredibly as surreal as quantum mechanics itself, which took a it, lot to understand in the first place. It seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. it seems to me that most scientists are giving up the idea that the human consciousness actually uh, affects the experiment. Oh, yeah, completely giving up that idea. It's given up, yeah. Totally, okay. yeah. It's that what, what affects experiments is large numbers of particles um, disturbing the balance. So for instance, this idea that we can have particles in superpositions mm. of states being in one location and another simultaneously in some delicate superposition, the particle in some sense isn't fundamental, doesn't really exist. What's real and fundamental is the wave function that describes the probability that the particle is at one location or the other location. Mm. And so, but it can, so therefore if you can get to a quantum experiment, you're seeing this funky superposition of things that we usually consider to be quite concrete. And we realize, oh, they're not concrete at all. They're not concrete existentially. Mm. It's not even clear that the thing exists. And um, But to keep that delicate balance, you can't have be bombarding it with tons of particles. And that's just something that we understand better now. So if I were just to open the laboratory and allow winds to come in, that they would collapse a wave function every bit as effectively mm. as a clumsy human finger yeah, and mind. I see, okay, I see what you mean. Because that has always bothered me that there's been a lot of new age interpretation of quantum physics. Sure, and yeah. That's, that's gone now. I would say it's completely gone at least, now. At least among scientists. Among scientists. <laughs> you can't blame them for thinking about it. And I no. love the openness to thinking about of course, things. Of course. But yes, it, that is gone so 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 the, the so there there is a realist interpretation basically of of reality that is yeah that 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 you attitude. could do a completely uh collapse of the wave function into one specific result yeah. where the particle manifests in a yeah. completely old-fashioned billiard ball sort of way totally inorganically without involving mm -hmm. anything alive Okay, I must ask you a little bit about mm -hmm. the concept of time as well. Yeah. How would you define time? Is that something? Is just is oh, the that easy just questions a relation? Today. <laughs> yeah, it's easy questions. You know, this is the free time. Off to my red eye flight. <laughs> I, I want to hear: is is time just a relation between objects, or is it something else? I don't know, <laughs> and I think it's a really. Really interesting question. I like the way you phrased it because maybe space and time are just relational. Yeah. Maybe space and time, when we look at it at the most coarse-grained level, will just have to do with relations between things. And again, this idea that that emerges in our experience on a coarse-grained level 
from like how pixelated images look very crisp and precise from far away will look like space time. But when we look up close, we see it's just relations between colors. And um, so I think time, I doubt time's going to be completely different from space in this facet. But again, maybe maybe time does stand apart. I mean, I don't think so. I, th I think my gut feeling is that time really is another dimension in the same sense that space is. And that, yes, it might turn out to be relational, but then I'll bet space turns out to be relational too. Because I remember when I was a kid, I, I read H.G. Wells' The Time Machine, mm -hmm. I think it's called. Yeah. And, you know, it was so mind-blowing, yeah. traveling in time. And so, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I had that in my mind yeah. since I was a kid. Yeah. Will that ever happen? Yeah. I mean, um, in Einstein's equations, as they stand now, um, it is mathematically possible to find solutions where you go back in time. And um, and that's a concern. So there have been things like chronology protection conjectures, mm -hmm. where people conjecture that something will forbid you from disturbing the chronological order of things. Um, but I think it could be subtler. So you know the famous grandfather paradox. So yeah, yeah. I um, go back and I kill my grandfather mm. um, before my parents were born. Yeah. And so I, how could I go back and kill yeah. my grandfather? Yeah. Um, but Do you there's have a solution? A, yeah, well, there are really interesting <laughs> arguments that who's to say that I have the free will to go back and do something incompatible with the laws of physics. <laughs> That's a pretty big assumption. Um, so there are arguments like this. I go back, I shoot my grandfather, I don't kill him, I wound him. And he uh, therefore is so deranged that he raises children that have me who's so deranged that I go back and shoot my grandfather. <laughs> so that's a consistent history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's very, um, what is it, 12 monkeys-ish. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think it's a bold assumption to think that we won't act out in a way that's consistent with the histories that are permissible. <laughs> Oh dear. Okay. Uh, one, <laughs> one last question. Uh, who are the big heroes of science that meant something to you when you were a kid and grew up? I mean, yeah. what's the role model? It's so funny. So when I said this, oh, I discovered science really late, halfway through college. I think we culturally think about science so differently now. We're really mm. excited to see scientific thinking in kids. We identify it in a completely different way than we used to. Um, I was not a kid with a chemistry set in my basement, but I clearly was scientifically, I had a disposition for it. I yeah. was reading books. No, just, I didn't think of it that way. Nobody told me, right? No, no. I was reading books about evolution uh, and by Carl Sagan and mm. uh, looking up at the stars. And I loved that stuff. I honestly weirdly had no idea it was scientific thinking and i think that's kind of interesting that's that, interesting that now culturally we're like oh that's a scientific mind um where in my case it was not identified went unidentified in some sense by me yeah. as well as people around me maybe good because um, otherwise you could be you yeah. have a sort of idea of what it was right. and, and reject it i mean I, my daughter is really um a naturalist she's 11 mm. And my son is not. 
And she is. She has all kinds of animals. She has snakes and lizards. Mm. She keeps very elaborate terrariums for the different beasts. They have, and she also has mammals, <laughs> mm. you know, and they have to be temperature gradients. And she studies what species and what mm. what the hypopigmentation is like. And I, if I told her she had a scientific disposition, she would also be offended. Mm. It's I very interesting. Mean. She wouldn't like it. So I just don't talk about it in that language. But clearly, it's just not what most kids do. She plants these elaborate um, habitats mm. that are perfectly designed for these different species. I mean, when she was a little, little seven, she asked for a fish to dissect from the market. And she didn't want it gutted. And the guy was about to gut it. And she was like, no, no, no. So she took a fish home, snapped on rubber gloves, cut it open with a scalpel, and took tweezers and started looking at the organs. Wow. <laughs> you know, I'm really wild, right? Yeah. But, um, but I don't know. that. I mean, I don't think she'll become a scientist necessarily i think she just wants a lot of animals but but that is son, so clearly is scientific thinking he's 14, 14. and he's a musician 100 percent. Okay. so he's not 100 percent. Yeah. no i mean he's he's good he's in his schoolwork that's probably his strongest subject but there's no mm. leaning towards it at all no he's absolutely musical it consumes him morning to night but Carl Sagan was uh, an, an inspiration for you. It's well, I definitely I remember the shows, yeah. and I definitely remember my dad really enjoying the shows, and that we shared that together, mm. and we would we would joke and we tease Carl Sagan because he was wonderfully teasable, <laughs> and we'd imitate the voice and the mm. you know it was just like really part of growing up was did you that read, crazy show Cosmos? Did you read uh, Douglas Hofstadter? Yeah, I but later. Mm. Um well not much later, like late teens, 16, 17, mm. you know. Um yeah. Um He influenced me a lot. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, I, yeah. Yeah, and then but and then I wasn't a sci-fi person. Yeah. I don't know. But like you mentioned, well, I mean these were James Glick, who's a wonderful yeah. writer, yeah. describes how influential those kinds of fiction writers were on 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 the progress of science. Yeah. James Glick wrote this on the information, mm -hmm. the information, what the information is basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And many other books. Yeah, as well, yeah, of but yeah. That's, I think that's his latest. Yeah. Okay, Jana, please, uh, thank you so much. And, thank you. And welcome again to Sweden. I'm and so we'll glad to be here. We'll see you in this big science show on Thursday. Thank you so much. Cheers.